So we still have this view that marketing people think the way to build a brand is to do it online. And there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever of any great brand that's being built purely through social media. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. What is a very, very special episode. So you may not know, but it is actually 40 years since the founding of one of the most famous and iconic advertising agencies, BBH or Bartle Bogle Hegarty. So I've met up in this episode with Sir John Hegarty to find out what it's been like to be at the helm of one of the world's most successful ad agencies and what he thinks looking back over a long history of advertising to see the changes that have happened in the industry, what we can learn now from the past and maybe what new techniques today are worth investing in. I um, also really want to get into how to write a great brief and also how to be a great client too. We touch on many of the great campaigns that, that come out of BBH, two of my favourites in particular being Levi's from the early 80s and uh, more recently Audi, which was in fact one of their founding clients and uh, spanned the entire 40-year history of the agency. As you would expect, an amazing storyteller, full of wit and wisdom and uh, lots of great advice. So here it is, my interview with Sir John Hegarty. So John, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Actually, just to pick up on that, it's today, 29th of March, 2022 is the 40th anniversary of the foundation of BBH. Oh, How about that? Well, there we go. That's special. And in fact, we're not Ooh. far from the offices, and of course, in Soho. Far. We're in Soho, yeah. So listen, take us back to the beginning then. Where did it all start for you? What, what inspired you to get into advertising in the first place? Well, I, I was at um, art school. I always wanted to be a painter. I thought Picasso had a fantastic life and met the most beautiful women in the world and I thought that's the life for me but I was at art school and I had a wonderful teacher who said to me you know John I don't think you're going to be the next Picasso but you seem to be great at having ideas you like ideas why don't you go and study graphic design so I took that piece of advice and he quite rightly said to me look don't do it at Hornsey I was at Hornsey College of Art but do it at the London College of Printing so I decided to do that went there studied design but I Funny enough, I found all the designers wanted to be at art school, not design school. And when I talked about ideas and the blank page, they all looked at me in a perplexed manner. Oh, God, no, a blank page. Oh, no, I don't like that. And so whilst I was there, another brilliant teacher, I was a very lucky man, you see, brilliant teachers, a man called John Gillard, introduced me to the world of advertising and showed me the early work of Dordain Birnbeck and Pabit Koenig-Lewis, all these great American New York agencies that were producing great, great work. And it literally was like a light bulb going on. I suddenly looked at this work and thought, that's what I want to do. And it was smart, witty. It was inclusive. You know, it wasn't excluding. It was inclusive. And it was superbly designed, brilliantly thought through. And I thought, that's for me. And that's so then I prepared a portfolio whilst at design school, which, of course, at that time, you, you know, it was like uh, Diablo had just walked into the room and you said advertising. Oh, my God, he's going to go into advertising. So I prepared a portfolio and got a job in advertising. Amazing. Actually, you just reminded me of when I, I did finance as my degree and then decided I wanted to be in the creative industries, which is a little bit of a, you know, a, a leap, shall we <laughs> yes, say. something to believe. I remember going to the, the, the university library and uh, asking for some application forms. They handed me the Saatchi and Saatchi one. This is back in the sort of mid-90s. It was quite a weighty thing. It was 15 pages long, entirely blank. And I just thought, that's very clever. What do you do with 15 pages of blank paper to sell yourself? I just thought it was really Wonderful. genius, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, looking back, you know, well, we talked about BBH 40 years today, of course, which is, which is quite a milestone. As you look back over the decades, how have you, what sort of changes have you seen over the span of your career in terms of advertising? And maybe what are the things that someone could learn today? Well, I, I came into the industry at a very fortunate time. First of all, in life, get your timing right. All right, that's, you know, now I don't know how you do that. But anyway, that's my first piece of advice. Got no idea how you do it. I came into the industry when it was beginning to open up, when we'd had the 60s. I came in in 1965, and, but the corporate world hadn't caught up with the 60s until the 70s. Because, of course, advertising was controlled really by corporations. They were the one employing advertising agencies. So the creative revolution really didn't, begin to happen in advertising until the mid-70s. And then we saw this 
tremendous growth in agencies like Colin Dickinson Pierce, and then there was both Massimi Pollitt, and then, you know, we were fought at Saatchi and Saatchi, and then we came along with, after I left Saatchi's TBWA, and this growth of creativity when people suddenly realised that advertising had to engage and entertain before it could inform. Up until that moment, the belief was you just repeated some boring message in some boring fashion, and that was enough to convince a consumer, a word I dislike, by the way, I talk about audience rather than consumers, to actually be attracted to your product. So there was a huge change that was sort of like 10 years after the revolution that happened in the 60s in music and fashion and film, because as I say, it was controlled by corporations and they are by and large 10 years behind where people are. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's, you know, often when you look back with nostalgia and so on, but do you, a lot of people say advertising is not quite what it used to be. You know, the, the big campaign ideas and the, you know, the big production and so on. Do, do you think that's true? Do you think or? I think that is true. But I saw a fantastic era in advertising when, you know, it really became culturally important. It managed to be a part of the national conversation. The advertising was talked about. I knew this was the case because I, I had a wonderful, my auntie, I called her my auntie. She lived in Harpenden and she really was the voice of Middle England. And I remember going to see her one day and she said to me, oh, John, she said, did you, did you do that Hovis ad, the one where the boy goes up the hill on the bike? And I said, mm, no, sadly, I didn't do that one. Gwen and she said well you should do more ads like that but they're the ones we like oh, so brilliant. I knew yeah. Yeah. that you know creativity was generally working so we saw this tremendous surge we saw this through the 80s into the 90s and where advertising was culturally important it managed to elevate itself out of the world of advertising into the national conversation and then in the sort of the noughties, you saw the development of technology where technology came along and said, actually, all this advertising is a waste of time, that what you need to do is just target your audience and stop all this wasting money on broadcast advertising. And that has seen a decline in the value of advertising and the quality of advertising. It is my opinion, but it's opinion that's based up by empirical research that shows the audience that we're talking to is less appreciative of the product we're producing than it was 30, 40 years ago. Now, I always say to that, I'm not sure what industry I've ever read where they've said to succeed, you should make a worse product. But advertising seems to have bought that. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's you know, true. Go, yeah. You know, if you make pizzas, somebody would say, do you know the way to succeed is make a better pizza, you know, and yeah. uh, or whatever. Our industry is making a worse product and expects it to succeed, which is, of course, why it's harder to build brands today than it was maybe... 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And yet, even even with that, there's a certain irony because actually the access to talent, the means of production now, the quality of things you can do and, you know, the, the ability for things to, you know, spread is, is greater than it's ever been. So there's also potential, isn't there, you know, to do th- access to things. It that is, you but can- if you don't have the idea to start yeah. with, what's the point in having all that wonderful yeah. technology? All that resource at your disposal, yeah. You know, as I, I, I always say, actually, I think um, I do a talk on this and it's called Can You Name... Gutenberg's second book and of course Gutenberg was the man who invented movable type and the printing press in 1440 or something like that and the book he printed was the bible he didn't print another book and you think well it's great goody that's been around for about a thousand years <laughs> right. what's you going to do you know <laughs> yeah. and of course he didn't know he was a technologist He didn't know. I just do technology. And it took a great period of time before people suddenly realized he'd invented the publishing industry. And actually now you could it was easy to print books and you could print books on all kinds of subjects and you could spread knowledge and all of those things. And it was a foretaste of um, what happened in in the Renaissance, you know, that he came along. And then you look at again, you know, you look at the Lumiere brothers, the Lumiere brothers invent the moving camera, and they gave up on it. They didn't realise they'd just invented Hollywood. One of the most significant <laughs> kind of developments yeah. 
in entertainment ever. They literally did. They gave, oh, I don't know what to do with this. They went back to yeah. taking not very good pictures. Yeah. And the same with... The same with text messaging, isn't it? Yeah. Like that was a security thing. Yeah, and internet absolutely. as well was it yeah, yeah, within yeah. universities. Um, and So we still have this view that marketing people think the way to build a brand is to do it online. And there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever of any great brand that's been built purely through social media. No, I mean, I can't, you know, I keep asking people to name one, there may be one or two, but I can name a hundred that have been built through broadcast because it fundamentally misunderstands how a brand is built. And I always quote this, there's a famous line about brands, which I wish I'd written, but I didn't. And it says a brand is made not just by the people who buy it, but also by the people who know about it. And this is what people operating in social media do not understand and they can't get their heads around it because they're essentially technology people and they like a one-to-one direct conversation which is fine but you've got to do both you've got to both build brand and have that one-to-one conversation as well John, one, qu- one quick question I think of BBH. You obviously named it after you know, the founders. It seems very popular, I think, of BBDO and DDB and so on. Not so popular now. What, is it out of fashion, do you think? To I, I think it is. Name on the door? Yeah, I think people have come up with the idea that what you need is a funny name. Um, and, it, and I think Mother did it brilliantly. And then everybody thought, oh, that's the way to do it. So they suddenly followed everybody else. I mean, the, re- yeah, the reason I think you put your name on the door... Our original letterhead was our three signatures on a dotted red line. And it was like, we've signed on the dotted line. Here's the person you, if you have a problem, this is the person you call up. And I think that still holds true as a concept. You, you, you know, this is, these are the people who started this company. This is, this is where you go if you've got a real problem. Where do I go if you're called Omnicom? It's, it's an individual. We relate to people, not structures. And that's why I think that's important. And maybe we'll get back to it. People will realise the value of it. There's certainly some humanity there, isn't there? And, you know, totally. trust in the, in the people and reputation yeah. comes with it and that sort you of know, thing. You think of other great brands. You think of Rolls-Royce. You think of Mercedes, named yeah. after people, you know. Yeah. Okay, Bavarian Motor Works. Yes, good. <laughs> kind of that. But, you know, but, you know, you look at so many brands, Marks & Spencer, Selfridges, you know, Sainsbury's, you know, they were people. People who had ideas and had a passion and a desire to do something. And I think that still is very much resonant of today. And the other thing I think you got very right as well is, is the positioning, you know, uh, when the world zigzag. I, I love that. Tell me the moment you came up with that. Well, it, it, when we set BBH up, the, the, the sort of the heritage of the agency was um, I had come out of Saatchi. I was a founding partner in Saatchi. And Saatchi came out and helped set up TBWA London, and that was 1973, and that's where I met John and Nigel, John Bartle and, and Nigel Bogle, and we became the sort of management trio of running the London office of TBWA, and we were doing incredibly well. I mean, it was doing it got campaigns first agency of the year in 1980, I think something like that, 79, 80, but we had very little ownership in in the business. And so we, we sort of went to TBWNA and said, look, love being here, but the ownership isn't right. What about doing something about it? But they said, no, that's it. This is it. We ain't touching it. And we said, well, look, if that's the case, then we're going to go and set our own agency up. So that was how we kind of went from TBWA to being the three of us setting up BBH. And the when we set it up, we, we decided, and it was Nigel's idea, actually, he, he said, I want people to appreciate the fact that we're a creative company. So what we're going to do is not give our creativity away in when we do pitches. We're going to give them a strategy, a positioning, but the creativity will not be given away because we really value it. It isn't something you just dish out. I thought he'd gone mad. Everybody said it would never work. It did work. And so... It, it became a way of defining us, this thing of not pitching with creative work speculatively. So the first piece of business that, that, that we won was Audi. And then the third piece of business after Whitbread was Levi's. And the first thing they did, they came to us and we said, you know, we pitched for it and said, this is, 
you know, you've got to go back to your roots. You've got to go back to where you were strong when you were great. And we did it through the product. And the first thing they said to us, though, but we've got to launch this, um, these Black Levi's. And um, I mean, OK, great. <clears throat> and I sat down, I did a poster for them. And I said, the thing about Black Levi's is that you're going to really stand out. So why don't I just do a whole set of sheep going in one direction and a black sheep going in the opposite direction with black Levi's. And again, Barbara said, and when the world zigs, Zach, we presented that. And first of all, Levi's went, they've gone mad. Where's the picture of the yeah. jeans? You know? Where are the jeans? Oh my God, where are the jeans? jeans? And a jeans and it, where jeans go, where jeans go. And so we know what a pair of jeans looks like. We're just emphasizing that they're black, you know. Anyway, long story short, they bought it because they kind of went, oh, I suppose we have to. And it did incredibly well. And Robert Haas, who is the great-great-grandson of Levi Strauss, saw the poster, had it framed and put in his office and said, this is what this company's all about. And so to thank me, they gave Levi's here in Europe, gave me a black sheep. And that became an emblem for the agency. And we just, and it was always, we talked ourselves about our, you know, then a philosophy of, you know, a black sheep and when the world zigs, you zag. And it was... Moving into Kingley Street in 1995, and we were having a meeting. So this is like 1995, 13 years after we'd had that post. We were talking to the architect, and I said, now look, what we want is a big flag outside with Bartleberg with Hegarty on it. And he said, no, you're not allowed to. Planning, you can't do it. And we said, what do you mean can't do it? He said, sorry, can't do it. He said, you can put your logo outside. And we said, well, we don't have a logo. We're an advertising agency. Stupid sort of thing advertising <laughs> agencies would say. And we were so, oh, God, you know. We were, and I remember, I can remember this meeting to this day. It was late in the evening, so it was now about 6.15, 6.30. Meeting finished, and Nigel and I were walking out. And we were walking down a staircase we had, and we both sort of went, looked at each other. Actually, we do have a logo. It's, we keep talking about the black sheep. And we went, yeah, we do, don't we? And that's our logo, right. Back up. So we've got a logo. It's a black sheep. You can put a black and sheep And that's the black sheep still there And that's today. the black sheep that's oh, still that's there. Brilliant. And that's how we came to it. It wasn't a big kind of like, you know. I love the fact it's 13 years. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's incredible, isn't it? It's so well, iconic. the great lesson yeah. there also is your, who you are emerges from what you do. Mm. We yeah. didn't just sit down on day one when we said BBH and said hey we're going to be about a black sheep it came out of a piece of work we did for Levi's we talked about it ourselves it became part of our culture they recognised it was something about us and it emerged through our work so again let the work do the talking yeah. tell me how the Levi's campaign came about because didn't, didn't that campaign also inspire the, you know, the, the positioning for you as an agency as well well, it certainly did. It, it, you know, you are, to a certain extent, obviously defined by your work. I mean, yeah. that's what you're producing. But we, we won Levi's in 1982. It was, and the fashion industry then for Levi's was in total disarray. It was, their business was failing. We were in what we call the post-punk phenomena, where fashion had been blown apart by punk. So a kind of brand like Levi's trying to supply a mass produced product which essentially what a gene is was very very difficult for a market which was just blown up where fashion had been blown apart and so they came to us saying you know uh, what could we do about this and we said to them you have to go back to your roots you have to go back and talk about quality but talk about it in an interesting distinctive way so we created three different ads talking one was about the rivets then there was one talking about the stitching and then we did one called Russia about them being smuggled into the then Soviet Union because this is 1982 and uh, 1983 by then. And it successfully sort of got people to kind of reappraise Levi's, but it hadn't been very good at selling the product. People went, yeah, I like Levi's. That's pretty cool. I like that. But they didn't know how, well, how, what, where do I go and buy, what do I buy from it? Because when you went in, it was like 30 different styles of jean. It was like unbelievable. It was like, oh my God, I spent all afternoon trying them on. And so they then, Levi's went, look, we think we've got to relaunch the 501. We're going to focus everything upon that. And they literally, we had to repitch it actually. We, we run the, won the repitch. And so it was 
going to be focused around relaunching the 501. So this is like 1984. Interesting, they did research on it. Kids didn't like it. They didn't like the silhouette, as they call, which is the shape of the Jeep. Didn't like it. Didn't like button fly. I thought it was terrible. It was like going back. I mean, wait a minute, a zip was much more convenient. Literally, this is absolutely true. But Levi's went, well, that's all we've got. So we have to launch it. So we had the task of, of relaunching it. And I kind of thought to myself, products in, a, in, in trouble. You go back to the roots of why did it succeed? What was it that made it what it was? And there was no question that obviously the 501 Levi's were part of the whole kind of teenage rebellion that came out of post-Second World War, music. Suddenly jeans were a part of this uniform, if I can call it that, of rebellion. And I said, you know, you've got to go back to capturing that. You've got to capture that, reinterpret it for an audience of 1984. And, you know, hopefully you'll succeed. So what we did is, and I, I kind of had the music in my head, but we took a product point about each one. So now you could buy a 501 ready washed. You didn't have to go and scrub it and stone it or wash it 14 times to get it right. You could now buy it pre-washed, ready to, ready to wear. Stonewashed, they called it. And so I thought, well, why don't we demonstrate a guy going into a laundrette to get his jeans stonewashed because that's what he wants them to be. And he wants the right look and the only label, so to speak. And the music is going to be Heard It Through the Grapevine. And... It kind of, and we did another one called Bath, where somebody's about to go out. You think they're going out, getting ready to go out, but he actually gets into a bath to soak his jeans so they fit properly. And we did these two ads, two commercials, and the rest, as they say, is history, certainly with Laundrette. And it's interesting with an idea. You, you know, sometimes an idea takes on magical qualities that you don't really think about at the time you created it. And there were a couple of things that came out of it. One, I wanted him walking into the laundrette and I wanted him to be about originality. There was no point in saying, these are the original genes, because kids went, so what? I didn't give a shit. Yeah. But if you said originality is behaviour, then they went, oh yeah, I buy that. Well, that's, if that's what you mean by original. So the idea of this guy coming in, he's not arrogant, but he's really confident. He knows what he wants. He's going to go in, going to get undressed. He's going to put his jeans in the, into the into the washing machine because he wants them the way they should be. He hasn't got another pair of jeans. He can't afford it. That's the way life was. So he's just going to work on those ones. But I hadn't quite clocked that it was like a fashion parade. He's walking in, people yeah. lined up, and he's walking yeah. down a catwalk. And, you could, and there are things that come out of it. And, of course, out of it, you know, we revived that music, that whole period of music. We revived boxer shorts. I mean, I've told this story thousand times but in, in fact in the original script I had him in Y fronts and the, the then authorities because you have to submit your script for approval so I'm very sorry no we can't have this person getting undressed it's indecent he's in public he's getting into his under and we said well they're just like a pair of speedos aren't they well, you know. no sorry and we'd really hit a brick wall and they were saying no you, we won't allow it and they came back and they said well look we've been thinking about it. if you put him into a pair of boxer shorts that would be okay. And we went, bolster shorts, that's a dodgy American underwear they used to, used to put on in the 40s. Okay, if it gets us the script made, then we'll do it. So we put him into boxer shorts and that was when, you know, boxer shorts went crazy. That's so, brilliant. yeah, and it, it, so it revived boxer shorts, revived music and did a fantastic job for Levi's. That's amazing. But, it, but it's, again, it was an example of becoming culturally important and yeah. we we got people to reappraise period of music and we got a lot of criticism from stock aikman and waterman one of those who said this is terrible this is awful we'd never do that and we wouldn't want our music in a levi's ad and why they're getting this old music out which was such a stupid comment because what we were saying is this music has a history yeah you know, nobody complains if you put Beethoven on and say, well, you wouldn't Beethoven on for? He's been dead for 300 years. I mean, or some stupidity like that. And lots of the kind of pop industry criticised us for that. But what we were doing, we were, you know, getting people to relook and 
reappraise this fantastic music that infected the music that they were listening to. And kids realised that. They all kind of went, we really love this, because it, I see, I didn't know that was done then, and that's why he does this and she does that. and da, da, da. So it, it gave them a real kind of cultural marker in terms of what was going on, and that was part of its success. Yeah, that's no, amazing. I, I love the craft as well, isn't it? Oh, it's the glances shot. and the way it's shot and the, the kid that comes up behind the Well, interesting, and- the, the, it was shot by a, a wonderful director. Sadly, he's no longer with us. But the art director on that who did the set, set was Arthur Max. Arthur Max has latterly become Ridley Scott's art director. He does all of Ridley Scott's movies. So if you if you see Gladiator or House of Gucci or whatever movie Arthur Max is the um, Oh really? Wow. Yeah, well, that, he, that, he was that, great. That and he found those he found those washing machines. I don't know where he found them. Down in some shop in some strange part of London that he discovered them and we put them in. They were beautiful, weren't they? they yeah, were really, ordinary. yeah. 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 But he did it, Arthur Max, a brilliant art director. Oh, wonderful. That's really good. And another brand you mentioned, actually, was Audi. Was that one of your very first clients? Then? That was our very first client, Audi, yeah. And, and how long, because has BBH still got Audi now? Yeah, they do indeed. They that still work with Audi 40 years later, which has got to be an absolute record and, and good for them. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Because I, I think that when I think BBH, that's one of the other brands that just springs to mind. The idea that you'd have a foreign language strapline always struck me. As, I remember when I first saw it, what were they thinking? You know, <laughs> can you yeah. tell me how that came about? Because I just well, it, it was very interesting because we we'd um, we were, had this positioning for Audi, which was we wanted them to be the humorous German, because first of all, nobody knew it was German. Audi sounds, it was Latin, it means to hear, to listen. And, but, you know, they were up against Mercedes and Volkswagen and BMW and that. And people didn't quite realise that Audi was actually, was German. Anyway, the original brief was just to sort of make it our position in the, in, in the kind of German car market here in the UK, if you were thinking of buying a German car, which was known for engineering and quality and all the wonderful things that we love about German products... Is, is kind of, we wanted them to be slightly more humorous. So we, we created these series of ads, one which was the, the glider about, you know, gliders don't necessarily land where they take off and the car has to track them. And the other was, how do you get to Marbella before everybody else? You, you take the, the aerodynamic Audi 100, so you get on the beach before the Germans. And we wrote all these ads, and there was a conversation about, what well, how do we hold it all together? You know, what, what's the kind of, What's the glue that sticks all these stories together? And again, it's that thing, you should always do the, the factory visit, as we called it. And I was down at their factory in Ingolstadt, I'd gone there, and I was sort of wandering around, being taken around, and, and I think it was, I was walking through an office, and, and I saw this old poster on the wall, and it had Vorsprung der Technik on it. And I said to the guy, oh, so what's that? And he said, oh, it's an old advertising line. We don't, we don't use it anymore. No, no, okay. It just stuck in my mind, and I liked it. I thought, oh, from Duch, Technik, oh, I like that. Anyway, didn't, you know, I didn't think any more of it. Then we came to create all the ads, and, and then suddenly we were having this conversation about how should we tie them all together? And I said, well, why don't we, why don't we just tie them together with this old advertising line they used to use, Vorsprung Duch, Technik. And Barbara, who I work with, the writer, said, just said, as I said, that as they say in Germany, and uh, we thought, yeah, that would be great. And so there was a big debate in the agency. Oh, no, you can't do yeah. that, you can yeah. do that, you can't. And I said, look, you know, people will remember it. Anyway, we sort of went, well, there was a... We showed it to the client. The client was great, Brian Bowler and Johnny Mazaros. And they went, well, we are a German company. We should be proud of it. Well, you know, they, and let's do some... But anyway, they said, we have to do research on it. We have to, we, so we did some research on it. The research came back and it said, whatever you do, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> no one understood. Don't do it. it. Yeah, I don't yeah, like yeah. it. They won't do that. And we went, mm, that's, no, but I'm going to get Jeffrey Palmer to say it. Wonderful actor. He'll say it in a very sort of like laconic way mm-hmm. with a slight sort of smile. Wolfgang Dörter, as they say in Germany. And it'll have humor about him. You're not getting that across in the research. Yeah. Anyway, fortunately, Johnny Mazaris and Brian Boulder, the two brilliant um, people at Audi just said, look, we're going to go with it because, you know, 
we are German, let's be proud of it. And we did, and as they say, the rest is then history. Yeah. yeah, it was great. It was a great example of being completely illogical to be yeah. logical, yeah. you know, yeah. because you... Yeah. But of course, it, yeah. it then absolutely established Audi as German, yeah. you know, as they say in Germany. Yeah. So it did a wonderful job for that, and it's, uh, they, they've sort of stayed with it, which is great. So one of my one of my questions for you is going to be: so you, you take take out as a great example of a client you've had for forty years. How, how do you keep yourself fresh in terms of as a creative agency? You must have. What do you do to make sure that you're always producing the kind of work that keeps that standard alive? Well, I think first of all, you have to focus the agency on what is important. And I always used to say, all roads lead to the work, and let the work do the talking. So whenever we we talked about BBH, the first thing we did is we showed the work. And I, I can remember, and so that focus on the work was fundamentally important. And I can always remember when we went to, um, opened our agency in New York and I went over to do it, we were going to clients and potential clients there and doing a creds present presentation. And we'd start with BBH, the history, and I could sort of see people's eyes glazing over. And also, Americans are very parochial. Yeah. And, and they'd be going, Bartle, Bogle, <laughs> never heard of this fucking agency. Who are you lot? And anyway, you could see them, you know, the, 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 the will to live draining from them. And I thought, we're doing this all wrong. And we, after about three of those, I came back and I said to Cindy, who was the, yeah, our MD and CEO, I said, look, we're doing this wrong. And I remember there was a great story that Richard Attenborough told about making Gandhi. And he raised the money to make the movie Gandhi. And he had to make this movie work for Americans because that's where the money was going to be made. And so it had to work in America. And he, and he, he was sort of confronted with this issue of kind of, who the hell is this funny bloke in a loincloth and two twiglet legs? The Americans are going to look at him and say, Who? Gandhi. So he thought, you know what, I'm going to start the movie with his funeral. And when 10 million people turn up to your funeral, you kind of go, blimey, who is this bloke? Yeah. And so that, that was that. And I, I thought, that's what we've got to do. So next meeting we went to, I said, introduced ourselves. And I said, before we say anything, I'm going to play you this show reel. And we played 10 ads, 10 minutes. And then you had the conversation. And all of a sudden, they wanted to listen to what you said. But they went, you made that. I've seen that. Oh, I like that. That's good. Wow. Then they would have the conversation. So you flip yeah. the way you do things. And I think at BBH, we always, 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 always were focused on the work. And the other thing, too, is, is remember that, you know, if you're a creative agency, you've got to have creative people at the top. Mm. You know, I remember having a conversation with John Lasseter of Pixar and he, he said made that same point he said you can't have a creative company without creative people being at the top of it they won't be the only people but if they're not there then how can you have a creative company you know? yeah, otherwise you're a management consultancy or yeah. whatever it might be or, and we had always believed in that and, and elevated the status of creative people and Nigel and, and both John would say nobody comes here for a great contact report. <laughs> you know they come here for the ads. That's Just remember point. that. The other thing I, in, in, in my short experience working with BBH was you, you're always also very good at presenting how the creative solved a business problem, which you always did in a very clear way, which I quite like. So our business problem is this, and this is how the creative. And so many agencies I've worked with almost forget what they're there to do, which is actually solve, you know, usually quite a chunky business problem, you know, sell more or expand your base or whatever. I always thought that was really good because it's real, the connection between the work and the results. It was always, was we always had a, very obvious. a kind of passion for that. You know, effectiveness was fundamental to what we believed in. But, I, you know, I've always believed that that's what creativity does. It solves problems. I mean, the other thing to realise about creativity is creativity is just a tool. You know, it isn't, a thing that exists over there. It's like breathing. You know, you breathe to stay alive. If yeah. you stop breathing, you die. Yeah. And in a way, if we stop creating, we kind of die. Mm. But, but people have this view of creativity that it's an object. Or oh, I go to witness it. 
I go and see it in a gallery or if I yeah. go to the theatre or if I put on a piece of music, oh, that's creative. No, it's everything. Everything you do, the way you are, the way you speak, where you live, what you eat, all these things are creativity. And creativity is there to help you solve a problem. You've got a problem, how can we resolve that? Creativity helps you resolve it. And that's what you've got to kind of remember about it. Mm. One of the things I was going to ask your advice on as well is what would be your advice to clients to get the most out of their creative agency in terms of getting to that creative? Because, you know, we often start the brief, don't we? And, you know, this briefs, you get good briefs and bad briefs. But if you were client side and you were, let's say you had just employed yourself, how would you manage that? Well, it's very, very easy. First of all, absolutely clear brief. This is what I want it to do. I mean, there's a great letter from Mick Jagger to Andy Warhol, getting him to, to do their new album cover. This is about 1970. And the letter is just great. And he describes what he's looking for and who he should ignore. And the other one is like, you know, apparently the brief, uh, the De Chavaux, an amazing French car produced post-war, was the brief was it has to drive, because it was made for farmers, because France is a big agricultural country, has to be made for a farmer and it has to be able to drive across a ploughed field with a box of eggs in the back and not one egg can break. That was the brief to the engineers and that's what they did. So you have a very clear view. Yeah. I mean, listen to Steve Jobs talking about what he wanted that product to do. Very, very clear. So that's the first thing, clear brief. The second thing is to realise that a great idea is the last business piece of value that you can extract because it's the difference between a great idea and an average idea it's only a piece of paper it's an idea but the difference it can make to your business is vast recognize that and then make sure everybody understands you are looking for a great idea and then when you're presented with the idea so these are three things you say, you don't say, hmm, that's really, really good. Now, what it doesn't do is this. You say to the, to the agency, this is a great idea. Tell me, how could we make it better? Oh, that's really interesting. Because your default position as a client is always to look at, well, the branding or, well, I'm not sure you got that functional benefit. Or, mm, and then, you know, then it suddenly goes down. It, it goes down, doesn't it? You just, it's it's yeah. negative. Not, yeah. And I can assure you the number of times that's been said to me, I could probably count on... <laughs> two hands but I always say this to clients and then you get something for nothing how can I make this better they will die to make the idea better mm. and all of a sudden you've got an idea that's like much bigger mm. than actually you originally wanted and more powerful more memorable and more cost effective yeah no that's brilliant that isn't it because because also I, yeah, I don't think I've ever worked with a creative agency that doesn't want to do bolder braver more groundbreaking work you know that, that's what they want to do isn't it you know and, and yet it's often the, as a client, you're going, wow, we've just got to not upset this department. We've got to make sure the customers over here like it. And, I did realise you know. so often when I was presenting, this is one of the problems that was that when I was presenting an idea to a client, that the actual, the audience that they were talking to were probably about fifth or sixth in consideration. Yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> true, yeah. There was, what were the Salesforce thing? Yeah. It, you know, corporate values. That's did it. they answer that? What would the chairman say? Yeah. The board don't like this. So I've got to do that. And then yeah. eventually there'd be the, yeah. the audience. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, them. Yeah. Oh, them. Oh, oh, oh that oh, lot, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Would, it get, around would it get through research, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean... It is crazy, isn't it? And, and you realise, actually, producing great work should be a lot easier. You know, it's as they, that old line about advertising's uh, a very simple business complicated by people. <laughs> That's very good quote. So what would your advice be to, I mean, obviously you've written the book on it, but in terms of how to be more creative, what can people do to sort of enhance their own kind of creativity? I think there are, there are a huge number of things. First of all, be aware of the fact that you are creative. You know, I suspend my, my time in, in the agency when we'd be talking about work and what should we do and which campaign should we recommend. And so often they'd go in the meeting, somebody would say, well, John, you're creative, so, you know, you, you obviously will decide. And I'd say, no, 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 we're all creative. It's just I earn my living by it. So the first thing to do is to understand you're creative. That is it. It is part of it's like breathing everything you do 
is is driven by creativity in some shape or form. And I always say, you know, a dog doesn't get up in the morning and go, do you know, my hair's just wrong. I've got to do something about it. It's just not right. They don't. They get up in the morning and say, I want to eat. (laughs) So we're creative. We're making creative decisions all the time, every day, dozens and dozens of them without you realizing. So understand that. Maintain an open mind, fundamentally important. Ask why. Cynicism is the death of creativity. You've got to be an optimist. Take the headphones off. Walking around with headphones is kind of excluding you from the world. You're absorbing stuff all the time. You put headphones on, you're cutting things out. You can't do that. You're absorbing all the time. And uh, surround yourself with the best. I mean, that's sad in some ways about creativity, but it is the case. You've just got to be around great people. Great people will expose you to better ideas. That'll force your ideas. That'll inspire you to do something better and make better ideas. Follow those things and and you can lead a more creative life. But being aware of the fact that you are creative is the first step. I like something where you talk about being fearless as well, mm. which is so important because a lot of people don't believe they're creative or they're, they're afraid of the blank pages you describe it in the book, which is... Well, I think fearlessness is important. I mean, I, I do say actually that most creative careers last about 10 years. Mm. You've got 10 years and you do your great work. And then you sort of repeat yourself by and large. This isn't absolutely true, obviously. Now... If you're in an industry like the music industry and you've written a number of hits, and I always use this example, but if you're Mick Jagger, you can go around the world singing Jumping Jack Flash and 30,000 people turn up and pay vast amounts of money to see you. We wrote that in 1968. But if you're in, in an industry where you have to come in every day and have a new idea, the question is how do you extend that 10-year career into a 15, 20, 30-year career? And you do it by doing all the things that I've talked about. Being open, being aware of um, your own ego. Ego is important. It's I. I believe in this. But don't let it become hubris. Hubris, which is me. And that will be destructive. So doing all those things is fundamentally important to developing that creative ability and understanding that you can go on being creative. You don't have to accept the 10-year, this is when I do my great work. You can extend that creative career by doing all the things I've talked about. An example of that is, is I always use, I think Frank Lloyd Wright was probably the world's greatest architect, in my view. And he died at the age of 90. He died six months before his greatest building was opened. And that was the Guggenheim yeah. in New York. So... You can go on doing it, but you've got to do all those things, be inquisitive being and being fearless because you're trying to come in every day and you don't want to repeat yourself. You know, if you've written Jumping Jack Flash, you can go no. on repeating it. It's fine, you know, you can go on doing it. Paul McCartney, you know, yesterday, I couldn't go on singing that for the rest of the, you know. But you can't. So fearlessness, not being afraid of failure... And remembering that probably failures aren't going to teach you anything. Yeah. You know, people say, oh, I learn from my mistakes. I, I contend in a creative career where you're genuinely trying to do something different. Mm. Failure, what can I learn from it? I failed. It didn't work. Mm. I can't obsess about that failure. If I obsess about that failure, it will drive me back to repeating myself. And that's where definite failure will occur. And you see it when, you know, a famous director does a movie. We've just had the Oscars. Yeah. Big hit, wasn't it? <laughs> Big hit. What a slap that was. <laughs> but, um, there we go. Yeah. Good. Oh, dear me. But yeah. you, you see it when somebody wins an Oscar and a new director and suddenly goes, this is amazing. You can have all the money you want to make the next movie and they make it and it's a complete flop. Yeah. Now, what do they do? Do they go, oh, shit, I better go back to what? won me an Oscar or I've just got to forget all of that and just keep going forward fearlessness and that's what you have to do so fundamentally important fundamentally important to realize that probably failure what can it teach me yeah you failed you it's going to happen if you don't try if you don't right? try you know <laughs> what I, I learn yeah longer story shorter story a bigger star smaller star fatter star slimmer star what should I have done don't know 
there are probably a thousand decisions that contributed towards that not working. So, you know, just keep moving forward. You obviously, you know, being one of the most creative agencies in the world, you must have come up with lots of ideas and presented them to lots of clients who probably sat there and thought, oh, this feels like a bit of a risk. So how did you approach selling in your ideas to, you know, to, to your clients and, and their businesses you know, to, well, get, well, to get the... It, it goes back to that thing that you quite rightly, John, pointed out, is that we were obsessed about the businesses, what we were trying to do. And the technique I always used for selling work is I never used creative expressions. I used the language that my clients used so that they would understand I had listened to them and I was solving their problem, not doing something I wanted to do. I mean, the huge danger is, and I watched ideas die, really good ideas die when we'd allowed creative people to present their own ideas. And instead of talking about how this was going to solve the problem that the client had outlined, they started talking about it was going to be really cool and it was going to be fantastic and that was a great shot and that was a fantastic angle and it would make a great film. And the client's sitting there thinking, I don't give a shit about a great film. I give a, What I care about is solving my problem. So the first thing in selling anything is to make the person you're selling it to understand that you've understood yeah. their problem. And you do that by using their language, not your language. And that's how I think we did it. Yeah, that, that is such good advice, that. Yeah, because I think you're so right, because you do get caught up in the creative process. The client in the, the day has got to go back to the business and go, I'm spending all this money <laughs> to do this. To do and something that John wants to do. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. It's going to be good for him, but is it going to yeah. be good for I'll win loads of awards, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. oh, thing, this but, is yeah. award-winning. Yeah. And we've got this great director and he's made it. I don't give a shit about all of that. What I give a <laughs> care about is it's going to solve my problem exactly no could, couldn't couldn't agree with you more as you look back at your uh, the, the work from bbh do you have any favorites i know it's unfair question perhaps to ask but but what, what are you most proud of what, what are the yeah when i'm asked that the one i usually give is we did a fabulous campaign for um a small little snacks brand called phileas fog derwin valley foods and it was they were it was started by these three wonderful guys and we had decided that instead of they were Californian corn chips or Mexican tortillas, instead of pretending, the campaign was instead of pretending that they were from California or this was from Mexico, and of course you'd have had to put a little thing on the TV screen, made in the UK, we we would go straight to it. We would say, these are not made in California, they're not. Mexican tortillas from Mexico. They're made in Medemsley Road, Consett, County Durham. And uh, we did a very, very humorous campaign all around the fact that these really wonderfully brilliant exotic snacks were made in Medemsley Road, Consett, County Durham. And um, when they eventually sold the company to United Biscuits, I think it was, United Biscuits had to keep the factory open. Oh, of course, yes. So that they could go on claiming made in Medemsey Road, Concert County, Durham. So for a period of time, I kept that factory open. That's brilliant. So just drowning off, just sticking on corporate for a moment, what's your point of view on purpose? Because it seems like you can't open a marketing magazine these days without kind of having a debate <laughs> on purpose. Well, Are we too I, obsessed with it? Or uh... I think purpose is incredibly important, but I think that's what gets you on the pitch. It doesn't get you to win the game and I and there is a side of me which goes jumping on purpose is is it debases you and it debases the purpose I mean uh, of course black lives matter of course I mean it's just appalling we even have to ask that question but the fact that then Pepsi do an ad on it I just find it insulting I mean just insulting and and quite rightly they got you know, they came completely unstuck. And you see brands doing it all the time. Hey, we believe in this or we be- No, I want you to make the greatest product you can make. I want you to make it in such a way that it doesn't harm the environment. I want you to make it in a way that, that, that is good for the community, that you employ people, you pay them a good wage. And of course, you support all those other things. But I'm buying that snack yeah. because it's made, you know, in the way that cares for the environment, cares for the community, cares for the people you work for. That's why I'm buying it, not because you support Black Lives Matter. And I think it's insulting to Black Lives Matter. So purpose is important, but 
you know, your advertising campaign should be telling me why you make the best product in the world. Makes complete sense. Good. Well, let me just round off then. Last question. Um, what would you tell your 20 year old self if you were starting out? Start your agency earlier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard one that you, you kind of look back and you go, every, you learn from everything that you did. So I think everything hard, happened at the yeah. right time. Yeah. What would I tell myself? I don't know. It's probably enjoy it more. I mean, I, I did love it. Often I used to worry hugely about having and coming up with ideas. And I realized sort of midway through my career that actually if I relaxed about it, I could come up with them and don't worry. I suppose that's the thing I would say to myself. Don't worry. Yeah. You'll come up with it. You know. Yeah, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, fun. don't we? It's, we do. It, yeah. yeah. But it's difficult. You've got a it, deadline. Yeah. And deadlines are good. We love deadlines. But... You sort of go home on a Friday knowing you've got a presentation on Monday and you go, shall I come in Saturday and Sunday and work on it or shall I go, fuck it, no, I'm going to have a weekend off and I'll come in Monday morning and have a great idea. <laughs> and in the end, I learned I could do that. It does work like that, Dave. I found that too. Like you go, am I going to try and work all evening or am I going to set the alarm at half an hour earlier, get up a bit earlier and then I'll have the answer. Usually it's that way. You know, we forget that, that play is probably the most productive thing that we can do. There's a great line about Albert Einstein says, um, creativity is intelligence at play. And I'm a great yeah. believer in that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great way to think about play. That's where solutions emerge. But of course, we, we have a kind of slightly puritanical view of it. <sighs> Can't be play. That's not work. Yes, that's not allowed, is that's it? That's not what <laughs> we do. You know, come in earlier, stay later. <laughs> play more there we go that's a good play conclusion more. to this episode well, that's one of the greatest ads we did actually for xbox when we introduced xbox and we did the, the, the end of it the, the line was life short play more play more there we go <laughs> top advice right thank you john it's a real blast pleasure. thank you so much absolute pleasure so ladies and gentlemen there you have it that was my interview with the legendary sir john hegarty founder of bbh if you enjoyed that, please do give me a review. You can do that at Apple uh, Podcasts uh, and Spotify. If you want to follow me, I am on social media. My Twitter is at UncensoredCMO. And you can find me on LinkedIn under my very own name, John Evans. That's John without an H. So uh, do connect with me and I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, please do give me suggestions for future episodes. I'm always on the lookout for great guests. Once again, thanks very much for listening and see you next time.